For the rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. Megan, thank you for that testimony. And uh, we will be praying for you and Donnie as you uh, take your next, forward, next step forward. So I'm driving to uh, school. I was teaching in New York City um, at the time. And I'm driving from Pennsylvania to New York. As I'm driving um, on Route 78, and if any of you are familiar with Route 78, as you start to get down to um, Newark and towards New York City, um, it has five lanes. There are um, two lanes that are in the express lane where you're not going to have a number of exits. And then you have three lanes over in your right-hand side, which is the local exit. So if you were going to get off an exit soon, you would be in the local lanes. And so I didn't need to get off anytime soon. I am driving to New York City, so I am in the express lane, but I'm on the right-hand lane of the express lane. There are tractor trailers that are flying by me, and I've got a little car. If you see it, it's the same car I've had then. It's the same car now. It's a little car. Um, and tractor trailers always kind of bother me a little bit. I mean, I get a little uncomfortable. I mean, they're running by you, and it's like you can feel the shake. And so there was this one tractor trailer, and he seemed to be a little bit aggressive, but, you know, I'm in the right lane. Hopefully, he'll go by me. He's in the left-hand lane, and I could feel him going by me. But then all of a sudden we come over a little hump there and there's a car in front that's going a little slower. And the tractor trailer, I guess, has to make a decision. He's either going to slam on his brakes or slow down aggressively um, or he's going to do what he attempted to do, come over into my lane. Now apparently he did not realize I was not going as fast as he thought, so he clipped the back part of my car. And he sent me into a spiral. And I've seen it. You know, you've probably seen it. California, they must be, I don't know what they do out there. They have these car chases all the time. And the police kind of hit the back of the car and spin a car out of control. I thought it was cool until I'm in the middle of it. (laughs) I'm in the middle of this thing. And it's now my car is out of control. And I went from the lane in the um, express lane over the median, over the fast lane of the local lane, over the middle lane of the local lane until I could get control of the car in the right-hand lane. I got over to the shoulder and the shoulder was a very narrow shoulder. And they talk about when you're in the midst of this, all the things that are flashing through your minds and they were, you know, my wife, my kids, I'm going to die. Oh Lord, help me. All these things that are flashing through in a nanosecond. But I found myself overwhelmed by a power that was greater than myself. I found myself, with all of my human efforts, they were failing. I found myself turning in and thinking about what was going on. I found myself feeling hopeless and helpless, and there was fear that was happening in my life. And I found myself crying out, needing deliverance. I tell you that story this morning because as we look at these two stories, and you may wonder how these two stories connect, they connect in that same way. We are going to see a great deliverer 
delivering his disciples from a storm and then delivering a man with multiple demons in him. See, that God can deliver you. Jesus can deliver you. Because that's the God that saved me. The only reason I'm standing here today is because he rescued me. Megan just shared her story. The only reason she is here with us today is because Jesus can deliver people. I want you to know that God this morning. Would you pray with me? So Lord, today, Father, as we feel overwhelmed by the troubles and the trials and and all our efforts seem to fail and and Lord, we are in the midst of despair and fear and we're panicking, we're crying out for a deliverer. I thank you for the fact that you can deliver us. Lord, I pray that more than you can, for many of us in this room, you have delivered us. And for some in this room, Father, they need to know that you can deliver them. I pray that they would see that after we're done today. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Two basic stories. Jesus calms the storm, and then Jesus rescues a demon-possessed man. Jesus calms the storm, and then Jesus rescues a demon-possessed man. Let's look at Jesus calming the storm. Look with here with me. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now, as Tim and Doug have been preaching, I think it was Doug and then Tim, were preaching through chapter 4, we have been seeing these parables. Doug started with the parable of the sower, and then there were several other parables that Tim met, uh, talked with us last week. Jesus has been teaching, this seems like it's all in the same day. Jesus has been teaching the crowd, Jesus has been teaching his disciples, Jesus has gotten it into a boat, some level of crowd control, because the crowd has gotten, is starting to press in on him, so he's got it in a boat, and now he is starting to preach this message. And on that day, after a long day of preaching, And teaching, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go to the other side. I find it interesting, and I call this providentially planned trip. It was a providentially planned trip. Jesus Christ providentially planned that they were going to go to the other side. This storm that is going to happen did not happen by accident. Jesus had planned they were going to the other side, and Jesus had planned that there was going to be a storm in the middle. Jesus is leading them into the storm. I I, I was thinking about this. How many times are you going through storms in your life? How many times are you going through trials and troubles and difficulties and you wonder how is it that it's happening? And when we go through the suffering, we tend to ask one of two questions. And maybe you've asked these. I know I have. Why, God? And then how? Why is looking for some level of meaning and purpose? I just don't get it. But how is looking for a way to handle it? I think we're going to see those same two questions here. So Jesus has led them in this path. He says, we're going to the other side. He is going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. So whatever is happening in your life, as sudden as it may happen, as unexpected as it may happen, nothing is happening by chance. Nothing happens in your life accidentally. My car was thrown around, not accidentally, but because of the sovereign plan of God. And I am standing here today because of the sovereign plan of God. 
And if he had chosen to take my life that day, which he could have, I would be in heaven today because of the sovereign plan of God. See, you can trust him. Through all the trials and all the troubles, all the difficulties, all the uh, struggles in your life, you can trust him because Jesus can deliver you. So I want you to think about that as we look through this story. Look here in verse uh, 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. I want you to notice their immediate obedience. Jesus says, we're going to the other side. The disciples didn't hem and holler. They didn't wait. They didn't go pack their bags. They didn't go back to the shore. They pressed out right from there. It was immediate obedience. I've used this phrase before. Our family, we used to talk about obey right away, all the way with a good attitude every day, right? I know it sounds a little corny, but obey right away, immediate obedience. Obey all the way. It's got to be complete obedience. Obey with a good attitude. So it has to be a hard attitude and you have to do that consistently every day. Well, that's what the disciples did. Jesus says, we're going to the other side. They put out to go to the other side. So the disciples are now going to be tested. There's a providential plan, but there's a spiritual test that I need you to see here. And the spiritual test is going to happen right here in verse 38. Or 37. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was overwhelmed or already filling. As they're going through this trial, <clears throat> these skilled fishermen are, are now all of a sudden coming into this trial. Now, I, I don't know this area. I was talking to Doug. I would love to be able to go, so maybe a couple of years he'll be able to take us on a trip over there. But in the Sea of Galilee, I guess there are these huge walls that are here, and as the sea is there, what sometimes happens is the coolness of the walls and the warmth of the water, it will create these storms that will come up, and they come out of nowhere. Is pretty traumatic. But these are skilled fishermen. They have been through these storms before. This is not something that should catch them by surprise. They know it, but this is a storm like no storm that they've ever experienced before. The providentially planned has now become spiritually tested disciples. They're being tested. And I was thinking about this. What do storms teach us? Storms of life tend to teach us that I am not in control. I'm not. The the fact is, is that storms teach me that somebody has to be greater in control than me. Because as I am spiraling on Route 78, I was not in control. Somebody had to be in control. I didn't even tell you the, the punchline of the story. I went over four lanes of traffic and I did not get hit by another car. Do you know when I was sitting on the shoulder... I could not find a moment where I could get out of the car because traffic is going by at such a clip. See, God made a way where there seemed to be no way. I call it my Red Sea moment. Well, the disciples have their own Red Sea moment, but they don't see it yet. They're just on the other side. The Egyptians are coming at them. The storm is in front of them, and they're afraid. Oh, that's a different story. You caught it. It's the same principle. The storms of your life, the trouble that's in front of you, the trouble that's behind you is not greater than the God that is with you. God is sovereign. 
I need to trust and you need to trust that God is completely in control of everything that happens. He's in complete control of everything. There's not a molecule in this universe, R.C. Sproul often said, that is outside of his control. Sovereignty means that he's supreme, he's unlimited, he's total in his independence. Even the sinful and painful things that happen to me or that I do, God has in some way exercised ultimate control over it. I need to trust that. The fact that God is in ultimate control of my life and in your life doesn't release us from responsibility. It doesn't release us from responsibility to do the right thing, to trust him and to obey him. It doesn't change that. But I need you to know that every difficulty, every trial, every trouble, God has in some way ordained it. God is one that is in complete control, but God is one that you can trust that he is good. He's a good God. He loves you. He is the power that is wielded, but it is wielded in perfect love. That love is available for you. It meets every need of the human life. That love that is yours in Christ. God is not only in control, but he's also so very good. And what it comes down to is that every trial and every trouble and every difficulty you go through, you need to figure out who are you trusting in. At that moment, who do you trust in? God is using this trial to teach his disciples. He uses the trials that you're going through to teach you as well. God is always available to help you in the midst of your trials. You are never alone, ever. The path has been marked out for you. God has providentially planned it, but he is spiritually testing you through this trial. Are you going to trust him? That's what the disciples had to deal with. That's what you and I have to deal with every day. Trust is a decision, though. Trust is not a feeling. Trust cannot be placed upon me. Trust is something that I do, where I trust you, God. The disciples needed to make a decision. So what happens is that the disciples then, believe it or not, go and rebuke Jesus. This is crazy. The disciples um, go to the back. Now, Jesus, they're, they're throwing out water. They are trying to row or do something to get through this storm. They are panicking. They are frightened. They don't know what to do. And then they look in the back, and Jesus is lying on a cushion asleep. Now, in the other gospel writers, they kind of tell this story, and they say, Master, Master, help us, right? And, and they probably did. Peter is just being very honest because Peter is probably whispering in John Mark's ear as he's writing this passage. And he is saying, you know what we actually said? You know what I said? Watch this. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I don't know if there is a more piercing question that we can ask the Lord Jesus Christ is, do you not care? That is cutting. I have left heaven to come to earth for you. I have encased myself in a human body for you. I have become a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief for you. I am going to die on a bloody cross for you. Are you telling me that I don't care? But we're tempted. 
Because I know, like I want to figure out three fingers point back, when the storms of life happen, what do you tend to think? God, you're not doing enough. God, you don't care. That's exactly what the disciples are thinking. Do you not care about us? Can I take a little uh, excursion here for a second? Uh, sleep. It amazes me about just this, this concept of sleep here. Jesus is sleeping in the storm. So it tells me one of two things. Probably both. He's really tired. <laughs> he has worn himself out with ministry. And we've seen it. In prior chapters, he, has had, he hasn't even eaten. His family is like he's crazy. And so he has really been pouring himself out for people because he has been sacrificing. He's going to sacrifice himself on a cross, but he has been sacrificing day after day so that he could speak the good news of the gospel to people so that they can hear it. He's been healing people consistently because he loves them. And he's tired. And it points me to the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ was truly God, but he's also truly human. He's incredibly tired. He's greatly fatigued. That is Jesus. But it tells me another thing about his sleep, which many of us need to hear. He trusted God so that he can go to sleep. He entrusted himself to his father, it says in 1 Peter. There's such a lack of fear in Jesus' life right now. He can sleep on a pillow as the storm is raging around. Isaiah tells us this, that he keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That the trust that we need to have in God to be in complete control of every molecule that's happening in this universe. That he is perfect in his love, infinite in his wisdom, completely in control. I can go to sleep. You got this, God. Well, Jesus was laying down on a mat, pillow, they said, in the back, cushion. And the disciples' rebuke of Jesus is really shocking. In essence, they're saying, you're not enough. You're not enough, Jesus. You don't care enough. You're not doing enough. I think that's us. So as he's providentially planned this trip and they are spiritually tested, then I need you to see this shockingly glorious deliverer. I want you to see this shockingly glorious deliverer. He's been aroused from his sleep. Jesus was really out. Ask my wife. When I really get tired, she's like shaking. Didn't you hear the alarm go off? No, I didn't hear nothing. I mean, I'm out. Jesus was out. And he's shaking. They wake him up. And Jesus, probably groggy, gets up. And what does he do? He has been rebuked by the disciples, but now what does Jesus do? He rebukes the wind. Peace. Be still. I don't know. They probably thought he was a little crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's like, stop snow. I mean, it's like, I, I try that. It doesn't work. Get warm. Where's spring? Um, it doesn't work for me. But with, with those, those simple words, peace, be still. And once again, what we see is, and the winds ceased, and there was a great calm. Great storm, great calm. 
I find it interesting as well that when Jesus heals or when Jesus does something, it's instantaneous. It happens immediately. See, if a major storm goes through, we will still have the tides that will rise for a while, and then you'll see the water is going to take a while to recede. It'll take a while for the water to slow down and stop and become peaceful. It doesn't happen with Jesus. Jesus said, peace, be still. It stopped. The wind stopped. The sea was like ice glass and this great storm has led to a great calm that was happening but that led to a great fear watch this Jesus then in verse 40 says he rebukes the uh, the disciples now he has been rebuked by the disciples he rebukes the storm now he rebukes the disciples and he says why are you so afraid You know, sometimes Jesus asks questions that don't seem to make sense to me initially. Because it's like, what do you mean? Hold on. (laughs) I just got spun on Route 78. You're telling me why am I afraid? (laughs) I just had water pouring into us and I think we're going to die. I'm a trained fisherman. I think we're going to die. Why are you asking me? Why are you so afraid? What Jesus is doing is what he's doing with all of us. He is asking you about your heart condition. And he's asking you about what you trust in. He's asking you about what you treasure, and he's asking you, who do you turn to in the midst of your great trials? See, that's it. Not that you don't have emotions. We all have emotions. The question is, are your emotions ruling you? I call it emotionally driven thinking versus expositionally driven thinking. Fancy words, okay? Emotionally driven thinking is because I am allowing the panic of what's happening around me and the panic that is happening within me to influence the way I think. The Bible doesn't say to do that. What the Bible says is expositionally driven thinking. It's driven out of his word. Jesus says we're going to the other side. Guess what? I guess we're going to the other side. Jesus says that there is a promised land ahead of you. I know that there's a Red Sea between us, but Jesus says I'm taking you to your promised land. You can trust him. Where's your faith? What are you trusting in? What are you treasuring? What are you holding on to in this world? What are you turning to in the midst of your struggles? See, there's a theoretical faith, but there's a practical faith, a practical theology where the rubber meets the road. God, I trust your word. I trust you. But it's been that way since the beginning. What Satan did for all of us in attacking all of us is to get us to doubt the word of God, to doubt the authority of God, and doubt the character of God. He has been doing that from the beginning. He is doing that today in your life. Do you trust God's word? Do you trust God's character? Do you trust God's authority? Why are you so afraid? The disciples were fearing. There's this great storm, this great calm. Now there's this great fear, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the waves and the seas obey him? The disciples are perplexed. They have no idea how they're going to answer this. I don't know who this guy is. Jesus is slowly unveiling who he is. The disciples still don't get it. They went from a fear of death to a fear of God. But they don't even know it yet. What did they learn? That Jesus can deliver me. You need to answer that question as well or know that point. Jesus rescues a demon-possessed man. 
I'm going to take an eagle's eye view of this. Okay? We're not going to jump into the weeds. We're going to take an eagle's eye view. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. So now they've gotten to the other side. It's probably in the next morning. They've gone to the other side of the sea to the, to the country of the Gerizines. Um, this is a small town that is right on the banks there, um, Garaza, this small town. And they encounter this man, verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So, so Jesus immediately sees a man that is bound and enslaved. I want you to see that. This man is living among the tombs, verse 3. He lived among the tombs and no one can bind him, not even with a chain. So he is not only, he is not only bound and enslaved, but he is completely alone. He's living in the tombs. Can you imagine? He is living among a graveyard. He's living in this place of death. This man is helpless and hopeless. We see that in verse 4. For often he had been bound and shackled with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He is destructive. He is alone. He is hopeless. He is helpless. And he is also self-destructive. Verse 5, it says this, night and day among the tombs and on the mountain, he was crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. Maybe some of us have gotten to that place in our lives. See, as you read of a story of a man who is going to be removed, demons removed from him, you're probably thinking that story has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with us. This is us. Outside of Christ, we are enslaved and bound. Outside of Christ, we are caught in a trap. Outside of Christ, we are hopeless and helpless. Outside of Christ, we are destructive of others. Outside of Christ, we are self-destructive. That is us. Now this great conflict arises in verse 6. And when, when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and fell down. The man runs and fell down before Jesus. Now once again, we see somebody demon possessed that knows that's Jesus it's funny that the disciples can't figure out who Jesus is but the demons knew and he runs to Jesus and watch this conflict that is happening he's running to Jesus he is dropping to his knees in front of Jesus but he is resisting Jesus that's us but he needed to understand that Jesus can deliver me verse 7 and crying out with a loud voice He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I endure you by God. Do not torment me. The demon is is crying out. The demon is speaking using the vocal cords of this man. And he is saying, you are the most high God, the son of the most high God. He is making a profession of reality that Jesus is the son of the most high God. But just making a profession doesn't mean that you are saved. James chapter 2, James says, the demons believe. You, you have faith, great, but the demons believe that. They even shudder before Christ, but they are not saved. Why are they not saved? Because they have not trusted and treasured and turned to Christ. Do you? Deliverance, verse 8. 
For while he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the man, the demon replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is, I believe, the largest grouping in the Roman army. And this could be up to 6,000 troops that would be in this. So whether there's 6,000 demons in this man, I do not know, but he's got a lot of them in him. And the demon is now saying, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 11. And now there was a great herd of pigs pigs that were feeding there in the hillside. And then verse 12. And they began saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. The demons are, are crying out. I want you to be able to see this, that these demons that have become so powerful in this man's life, he is hopeless and helpless, but they have to beg Jesus for permission. Because Jesus can deliver me. So Jesus gave him permission. And unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbered about 2,000, rushing down the steep bank into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. Now I know some of you got a problem with the fact that Jesus allowed the pigs to die. (laughs) I'm just telling you, wake up. And if you eat bacon, ham, I love my wife's ham and broccoli stir fry, we eat pig, okay? But even if you don't, even if you don't, I need you to hear this. Jesus showed the value of a human being was greater than 2,000 pigs. And if I can rescue one human being and I lose 2,000 pigs, I'll do that in a moment, Jesus said. Because Jesus can deliver me. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and, and told and they went to the city and they went to the country and the people came out to see what had just happened. And they were seeing, they see the story, and those who had seen it had described to them what had happened. You see the demon, because man, he is naked, he's cutting himself, and then Jesus comes, and demon talks, and 2,000 pigs run off the thing, and they're all drowned, and look. They tell the story. And Jesus began, or they began to beg him to depart from their territory. I find it really interesting that at this moment in time, they have just seen this amazing thing happen. They see this man seated next to Christ in his right mind. This man that had been tormenting them that they probably were afraid of for years. They probably would not let their children go out that way. They were trying to bind him and they could not. They have now gotten the answer to their prayers. And the person that has provided it for them, they said, no thanks, goodbye. Sometimes I look at the story and, you know, you look and you say, okay, I don't have 2,000 demons, I hope, right? And I don't, I don't feel like I'm going to do these things that this man did, right? But I was here. I was lost and Jesus found me. I was enslaved and Jesus freed me. I was in need of somebody to rescue me and Jesus paid By pouring out his blood and breaking his body for me and for you. 
So what does the man do? There's a catechism. It's the Westminster Catechism, and it goes this way. It, it, sorry, the um, Heidelberg Catechism. It has three sections to it. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And this man was feeling great guilt because he was enslaved. Jesus has offered him grace, and then he is turned in gratitude to Christ. The people of the town are saying, go. This man says this. Verse 18, and when he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had possessed by the demon begged him that he might stay. The people in the town are begging him to leave, Jesus to leave. This man is begging him, can I go with you? You've rescued me, I want to go with you. And Jesus has shocked me, right? Jesus has shocked me by saying, why are you afraid to the disciples in the storm? Jesus is shocking me here. The guy says, I want to be your disciple, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no. Verse 19, he did not permit him, but said, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. See, he, he was given a mission and he was given a message. He says that I, I have delivered you. Now I want you to tell that message to others so that they could be delivered as well. In verse 20, it says this, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, this is the demon-possessed man that has been freed, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So I want you to consider this this morning. Jesus can deliver me. But the message that the man went out with was that Jesus can deliver you. See, every week that Doug and Tim and I get an opportunity to stand in this pulpit, we get the privilege of telling you that Jesus has delivered us and that Jesus can deliver you. Because we have nothing else. We have no other abilities other than telling you that the answer to your greatest struggles is Christ. See, when you're overwhelmed by powers that are greater than yourself, it's Christ. And when all other human effort fails, it's Christ. When you turn in on yourselves, it is Christ. When you are helpless and hopeless and you are fearful and in despair, it is Christ. And when you need a deliverer, there is no one greater than Christ. Remember a long time ago, we used to, at our missions conferences at church, we had this song, we have a story to tell to the nations. You remember that one? I'll just read this to you in closing. We have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy. A story of peace and light. A story of peace and light. From the darkness shall turn to dawning and dawning to noonday bright. And Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. We have a song to be sung to the nations that shall lift their hearts to the Lord. A song that shall conquer evil and shatter the spear and sword and shatter the spear and sword. We have a message to give to the nations that the Lord who reigns above has sent his son to save us. A son to show us God is love. And to show us that God is love. We have a savior to show to the nations. Whose path of sorrow has trod. That all the world's great people may come 
to the truth of God. May come to the truth of God. I don't know what it is that has um, caused you to spiral out of control, what has overwhelmed you, and I don't know what human effort you have been trying to fix your problem. You can't. And some of us have turned in on ourselves and we have destroyed ourselves, maybe taken stuff into our body to destroy ourselves. Maybe we have done things to our body externally to destroy ourselves. Maybe we've used our body to destroy ourselves. And maybe you're at a point where you're helpless and hopeless and you need a savior. Turn to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, today, Father, I pray that every person in this room would actually hear those words, Jesus can deliver me. I pray that they'd be ringing in their minds. Jesus can deliver me. Jesus can deliver me. Jesus can deliver me. And then when they, when they get captured by that, Lord, and when they trust in you and turn to you and treasure you, Lord Jesus, and they, they trust you today, Lord, I pray today is the day of their salvation. I pray today is the day that they recognize that they are bound and enslaved outside of you. That they're hopeless and helpless outside of you. That they're destructive of others and they're destructive to themselves outside of you. But you can rescue them. You can rescue them from the storms of life. You can rescue them from themselves, Lord. I pray that they would turn. Lord, for the many of us that do know that you have rescued us, I pray that you would remind us of our mission and our message. Not everybody's going to get in a pulpit and preach, but every one of us have a a sermon to tell. We have a story to tell to the nations of what you have done for us because Jesus can rescue and deliver them. And they could use them. You can use them as a mouthpiece. So use us as a mouthpiece today. Help us to proclaim the gospel. Help us to demonstrate the gospel. Help us to magnify you in Jesus' name. Amen.